you remember when you first got saved, you think, you thought, man, everything's going to be good. What are y'all laughing for? Because you know the truth by now. Maybe it took an hour, maybe it took a week, maybe it took a year, but you figured out the truth that just because you got saved, it didn't suddenly become perfect. We, sometimes we think, oh, well, I'll get saved. It'll be like Disneyland every single day. You know, something new, exciting, something, uh, it's always good. It's the, the good things are always coming my way. Sometimes we have that thought, don't we? And we think, man, this is just going to be like living heaven on earth. And to an extent, maybe that's true. But the reality is life goes on, doesn't it? And the reality is the Bible says in Isaiah that it rains on the just and on the unjust. It, we're going we're gonna to experience some different trials. Matter of fact, um, as we think about this, I want to just point out a scripture out of Hebrews 11. Uh, you can turn there in verse 37, 38. We're going to be in John 6 eventually. But just as a, a way to just think about this, they were in Hebrews 11. It's called the Great Hall of Faith. And, and this is some that were, uh, did remarkable things for the Lord. Pastor Tolbert, I referenced this in his Sunday school hour this morning, did a great job this morning encouraging us to be faithful examples to other people. And in Hebrews 11, the very end of that chapter, he talks about the many he never even uh, mentioned in this chapter. And he says, they were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Aren't you glad that, that you're not in that list? Hey Amen. I don't want to be cut in half. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They, were, uh, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Listen, these are folks that love the Lord. Man, and, and they proved themselves faithful through all this. And, but somewhere along the line, we got this, this uh, image that, man, when I come to Christ and I have my life in, with God, then everything's going to be perfect. You know, that's not the promise that God offers. But He does give us some good promises, doesn't He? Matter of fact, I want, to, I want you to just feed back with me just for a little bit. Uh, what, are, what is one of the promises that mean a lot to you that God's offered to you? Anybody can just shout it out. Brother Steve. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Good. Brother Steve. Everlasting life. Amen. Now, I'm going to need at least two more Steves in this congregation. I've called on two of them. Just Brother Leroy. Promise that he cares. What a great promise from God. Amen. Somebody else. Amen. Good. I saw a hand right here. He's immutable. He never changes. We could go on and on. Each of us probably in this room. I know Brother Jesse's like, oh, okay. Each of us in this room could probably recount, this is the blessing. This is the promise of God that I cling to. And I want to share with you a couple of promises from God this morning from our text in John chapter 6. And as we pick up this in this particular place, I want to remind you that this is a continuation of what we preached on a couple of weeks ago where Jesus declared to the, to the multitude that was gathered, I am the bread of life. Man, what a great declaration. What a great thing that Christ said there. And he reminds us that he is the source of life. And if we truly desire life, it's not going to come in anything else outside of Jesus Christ. But as we look at that, 
Starting in verse 41 is where we're going to be. The text seems to indicate here that there is almost another event that has happened. And so it's two, two similar conversations that by the inspiration of God were put together beautifully in John chapter 6. And it seems to be a continuation until you get to verse 59. And we see that he's actually now in the synagogue in Capernaum. And so he's in a different place talking to a different crowd. Maybe a similar crowd, but not the same exact crowd as he started this conversation. And so as, as we look here, the first conversation would happen following. Uh, following uh, Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000. Early in the chapter, we saw that Jesus Christ fed the 5,000, and boy, the multitude was just excited. They were uh, jubilant. Matter of fact, when Christ was missing the next morning, they followed him around, uh, across the Sea of Galilee, and they wanted to find where Jesus went. And then when they caught up to him, Jesus began to teach them about what, it really, what really matters. Because remember, they asked, what must we do? And Jesus reminded them, it's not about doing, it's about where your faith is. Remember, Christ is the one that performed the work. We're the recipients of His great grace. And so as we pick up here, we see that He's already started telling them about He is the bread of life. And now they've carried this into the synagogue of the, uh, there in Capernaum. And, and, and so you can almost sense the Jews as Jesus walks into that synagogue saying, oh, this is the heretic. This is the guy that said, I am the bread of life. And so as He comes in this, that's where we kind of approach this passage today. A little bit of background to tell you where we, we, we've been. And now going forward, we're going to pick up this conversation uh, where Jesus makes this great declaration. But in the midst of it, I want you to look at two different promises that God makes to us here. Let's look at the text together here in John chapter 6 and verse number 41. It says, The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be, uh, shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. And he's talking about himself. It's a beautiful picture here for where he talks about his eternality. We'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 47 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and, ye are, and, and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this, the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my drink, blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. 
This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let's stop and have a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you for uh, your precious word. We thank you that we can come to uh, assemble together today for worship, for encouragement, for strength. Lord, knowing that you are the God of all creation. We thank you that you uh, shared with us our origin. And Lord, that you have given us confidence in your person. Because as many of us shared today the great promises, Lord, you've never failed us in any of those. Because you are the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we come to your word today, I pray that we would grow in faith and grow in confidence because you are the God who keeps his promises. Lord, we're looking forward to that day when we will meet you face to face. But until that time, we're thankful that your promise is you never leave us or forsake us. You are even here with us where two or three are gathered in my midst there, you will be there. And so we're thankful for that promise. And so may you encourage our hearts. Lord, those that maybe are here questioning, not sure, Lord, I pray that they would I know Christ as their Savior before it's eternally too late. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to this passage, I've already mentioned that Christ uh, has not offered us a fairy tale life. Uh, matter of fact, he's going to say in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Yea, and all that will of godly shall suffer persecution. We know that. We know that there's going to be times that are difficult. And as a church, when we come to Christ, it's not because I, I, I'm expecting things to be perfect, but I expect him to walk with me through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It indicates that, yes, we're going to go through these things, but I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. My confidence comes from his presence. And so we have great confidence in the presence of God as a believer that it's not just uh, about uh, saying a prayer and then, uh, you know, then being doing our own thing, but instead living with God in our life, living with Christ in our life. The reality is that there is no perfect church. We're not perfect. I'm thankful for my church. I love our, our church family. But we're not perfect because you have me for pastor. <laughs> but the reality is you're here too. And there's not one of us that's perfect in this room. But what we can do is we can strive and we can labor together uh, for the cause of Christ. I love what Paul stated in, in Colossians. He says in Colossians 1.29, where, whereunto I also labor. He said, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I'm thankful that God's not done working on me. Amen. I'm thankful that he's not finished. He's still working about this, this work that he has planned in my life. And, and the reality is none of us have arrived. I, I know that many of you have been saved much longer than I have. And I'm thankful for your testimony. But listen, we've never arrived. But one day, the work of God will be complete in my life. And, and one day, I will be with him eternity. And that's when he calls me home, whether that's through the rapture or whether that's through death. And then I open my eyes to meet him in glory. Man, that'll be awesome. It'll be a great day. That will truly be a state of euphoria, amen? To be forever in the, the, the visible presence of God. But God leaves us encouragement. Philippians 1, 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work or begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the passage here in John chapter 6, he's, he's beginning to teach them some more difficult things, but really it's just all about faith. It really is about faith. You know, your walk with Jesus Christ is about faith. Le learning to, to, to live with Christ, learning to live with God, learning to just do these things is just trusting the promises of God. 
Can you trust him? Many of you say, absolutely, Pastor Amanda. We have learned that we can trust God. We have seen him be faithful. We've seen him do awesome things in our life. But maybe you're here and you're, you're kind of new to Christianity. Maybe it, you're kind of going through a, a valley and you say, Pastor, I, I, I don't sense him in my life right now. And, you know, Pastor, I'm kind of struggling and, and knowing. I just want to come back to this simple truth today and come back to the promises of Christ that he lays out here in this, to this wonderful text and he shares with the Jews. And he shares, tells with us today that we can have confidence in the very one that saved us because he is still alive and on the throne today. So let's look at a couple of promises today. The first one is the promise of the resurrection. Look in verse 41. It says, Then the Jews murmured. They, they came to Christ. Of course, they heard what he had said in verse number 40. Uh, this is the will of him that sent me. So he's talking about he is from God. They rejected that because that would, they knew that that would uh, equate him with God. But then there was also this other that comes, on, uh, comes along, and he said, I am the bread of life. And so they recognized that he is saying, listen, I come from heaven, I am from God, and they recognized that as being, I am God. And so immediately they started to bring up murmurings. In verse 44, look there with me, it says, No man come, can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I love the fact that Jesus Christ mentions the resurrection right here. Right here in verse 44, he comes to this place and says, I, listen, this is the promise. Just as God saved you, he will one day resurrect you. Man, how many of you came to church with aches and pains? Amen. Probably every, every hand in here today, someone says, I can't get it up. That Pastor Tolbert said like this. I love it. You know, we, sometimes we get to this point where we're like, man, I just, man, it's so hard to live in this life. But the reality is one day there will be a bodily resurrection. And it's not going to be the same broken down, worn out body that, is, uh, that suffers like we suffer today. It'll be perfect. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning because I want you to see what the Bible says about this. But before we do, we're just going to build up to that point. And so let me just kind of share with you a little bit about the crowd that was meeting there that day. As Jesus was sharing in the synagogue, remember, the Jews were made up of two major sects, if you will, two different uh, divisions. One of them would be that of the Pharisees, and the other would be that of the Sadducees. These, these were really the ruling class in the Jews in Israel. And a matter of fact, the Sanhedrin, which is this, ultimately the ancient Supreme Court of the Jews, was made up both of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They both sat upon the, this, uh, this council, and they both ruled regarding decisions in, uh, in cults or new teachings and, and those things. And so that's, he was meeting with some of these people that had different belief systems. Now, what's the major differences? Because we've heard about Pharisees and Sadducees. So what's the difference in the two? Well, a Pharisee was a person who not only believed the Bible, but they also, uh, or, or the Old Testament, but they also believed um, in oral tradition. And so they held both to tradition and the Bible. So they were much more open to new things that arrived. They, were, uh, well, they would probably be the more liberal sect of, of Jewry at that point. And then there was the more conservative sect, and that would be this, the Sadducees. And they would only strictly adhere to the, the Bible. But it was a literal interpretation. And, and as we look at that, we see that they would uh, never, uh, they, they were very, uh, uh, very literal in a lot of things. They didn't believe in a, a resurrection. Uh, there was some major differences. And, and as we look at the differences, there's some, uh, I, I want to just point out a couple of things about us today. Because 
you may, you know, if you go home, you may pass three or four different churches on your way home. And, and down the road, we have an Assemblies of God. And up here, we have another one uh, that's a non-denominational. And then you have another one in town that's maybe Catholic. Or there, maybe there's a Presbyterian. You say, Pastor, why are there so many different denominations? For the same reason, there was two different classes or two different belief systems even in Jewry at that time. It's all in what you give authority. For example, here at Hillside Baptist Church... We elevate the Word of God as the supreme authority for our faith and practice. If it's not in the Bible, we don't believe it. We're not going to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. And if God calls it uh, an abomination uh, 2,000 years ago, we could still hold to that truth today. Uh, if God says that salvation is by grace alone through faith, then that's what we're going to hold to. We're not going to add any traditions. It's not by baptism. I'm thankful that we can follow Christ in baptism. But baptism doesn't save us. And that's, that's a tradition of man. And so as we look at this, I, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. That, that the Bible, the, we believe, is God-inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 16 and 17, reminds us, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This literally means it is God-breathed. He literally spoke it, and, and, and then I love what 2 Peter one twenty one says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we, we from Genesis to Revelation, I, and, and if you're a literalist like me, I even believe the cover on mine when it says Holy Bible. Amen? I believe it all. I, I believe what the, the words uh, from Genesis 1.1, John, God said, In the beginning, God. I believe that. I believe that he's always been. He's always existed. And we believe the Word of God here at Hillside. And so I'm thankful that we have something sure that we can stand on. Now, why are there other denominations? Because sometimes we elevate other things to the same level or even more supreme than the Bible. For example, sometimes some churches, some denominations will elevate man's emotions. And they'll say, listen... Man's emotions are important, and man's reasoning and cognitive abilities. We need, to, we need to listen to these things, and these are important as well. But I will argue with you that over the years, we've been wrong about a lot of things. I don't know about you, I don't know about you but we were wrong. Science has been wrong over the years. Science at one point said the earth was flat, but the Bible's always taught that the earth was a sphere. And so we look at this, and we say, well, are we going to elevate man's reasoning? Or we're going to elevate the Word of God. Sometimes we elevate tradition. And I love doing things uh, that we've always done. I like the old hymns. Uh, I enjoy uh, uh, just being able to celebrate the 4th of July. I enjoy things like that. You know, some things that we've always done. But are they gospel? Now, I'm not looking to split hairs. Some of you are going to say, listen, he's going liberal. He's just talking about this stuff. Let me just share this with you. We need to stand firm on the things that God stands firm on. I'm not looking to split any hairs. I love our hymns, and I'm not looking to change anything, so don't, don't interpret that. But they're not the same as the Bible. The Bible is inspired by God. Hymns were, uh, were given to us by men, and I'm thankful for them. But listen... There's not just tradition, it's not just man's reasoning, but sometimes we elevate people. Uh, uh, the Catholics will elevate the Pope, for instance. And so his word is even more supreme than the word of God. And if they too contradict, then they follow the Pope's word instead of the word of God. You know, so we, we ask ourselves, why do we have so many different uh, religions? Because people elevate the wrong things. 
And as Paul was coming to this group of people, and he was in this synagogue, Paul, Jesus, excuse me, as Jesus was in the synagogue here, and he's talking to them about, I am the bread of life. He's trying to teach them some very important lessons about uh, God's promises for us today. But he knew that he was dealing with varying groups of men. And so he brings up this resurrection, knowing that the Sadducees would reject the regis- reg- uh, resurrection. Even the Apostle Paul exploited this and when, in Acts chapter 23. And when he was able to bring division in the two groups that sat on the council that day, it says in Acts 23 verse 6, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. He used their division to bring division again. But as Christ stands before the Jews in the synagogue, there were men that rejected this idea of the resurrection and some that would even accept it. But he's trying to bring clarity for us today and he's trying to remind us of a promise. And so let me just mention a couple of things that Jesus did first and foremost is he reminded them of his origin. Jesus Christ has a perfect origin because he comes from the Father. You know, and as a believer today, we have confidence that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And, And so very first thing he did in verse number 43... He says, murmur not among yourselves in 34. No man can come to me except the Father which sent him. Draw me, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall be taught of God. Every man, man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Jesus was talking of himself, and he says, listen, I, I know what I'm talking about because I have been there. I am from the Father. I'm from heaven. I've eternally been. And Christ was plainly stating that he was of divine origin. Now remember the context. He's dealing with the bread of life. They bring up manna and they bring up Moses. And we dealt with some of that a couple of weeks ago. But just as a reminder, manna was given as a miraculous uh, event of God. And God provided miraculously six days a week for 40 years manna in the wilderness for for the people of Israel. They'd go out every morning. They didn't have to do anything but go out and gather the manna that they needed for their home. Every day it was there. Every day like clockwork except for the Sabbath. That was the only day God didn't provide it. But Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every day they would go out in the morning. They would find manna on the ground. It was there prepared for God. It was from God. It was a miracle from God. And it was sent to be a blessing to them and provide life in the midst of a wilderness. In the same way, Christ claimed to have come from heaven. He said, I came from heaven. I was sent from the Father. I am a miracle here. His birth was a miracle. And Christ is teaching to those that were there even about his virgin birth. Remember, uh, this is uh, some people will claim Christ never said he was virgin born. But I think in this passage, you can make a pretty good argument for that truth. Matter of fact, Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, this is fulfilled by Matthew shares with this in Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, y'all are pretty smart people. I probably don't have to explain before they came together. Can you get an amen? Okay, good. All right, good. Making sure y'all know. 
So we see here that Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Christ was teaching, listen, I came from the Father. I'm not from Joseph. And they talked about him being from his father. They watched him in the carpenter's shop. They saw him growing up. He said, this is, this is not my father. My father is the one that sent me is from in heaven today. He was preaching and teaching his own deity in this moment. And so Christ taught the Jews that his origin was not the same as their origin. He's not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. They were completely blind, though, to the glory, and they were ignorant, ignorant to him. Whom they, remember, they had seen him grow up. They'd seen him in the carpenter shop. Maybe they built, he built something for them, maybe a chair or something in their home. So when he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven, they recognized what he was saying, I am God. Like the manna in the wilderness, I come directly from God. Listen, understanding that Jesus is God is a fundamental truth for salvation. You see, you can believe Jesus is a good, uh, maybe a good teacher. Maybe you can believe he was just a good person. But unless you believe that he's a son of God, you will not experience salvation. It is that truth right there that is fundamental for uh, our faith today. Christ was not just another carpenter. He was not just another rabbi. He was the only begotten of the Father. He is the pre-existent one, and thus making him the only one worthy to be slain as a sacrifice for the sins of all men. And it is, it is pride, though, that resides in our hearts that keeps us from believing this truth. We reject that the God of heaven would choose to be born as a babe in a manger. We reject the fact that he would humble himself and, and into such a tender form. One man wrote this, Pride, the wicked pride of the self-righteous heart is responsible for unbelief. Men despise and reject the Savior because they feel not their deep need of him. Feeding upon the husks which are fit food only for swine, they have no appetite for the true bread. And when the claims of Christ are really pressed upon them, they still murmur. Listen, people today still murmur about the deity of Christ. But I urge you, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe this truth today before it's too late. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, The first man is of the earth earthly, the second man is, of, is the Lord from heaven. Do you believe in Jesus Christ today? Do you believe that He is the Lord of heaven, came to this earth? I tell you, that's, that's essential for what's next. Because it goes on and makes a personal promise to these folks here. And we mentioned in verse 44, talking about that resurrection. And, and as Christ mentions in passing here, I want to spend a little bit of time clarifying, hopefully, from the Word of God, what He mentions as He says, I will raise Him up at the last day. This promised resurrection is for all men and women. There are, uh, there are two resurrections, all right? First off, you're going to be part of one or the other, all right? There's the resurrection of life, which is the first resurrection. There's a resurrection of condemnation, and that's the second resurrection. Let me just say, as we look at these scriptures, you don't want to be part of the second one. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in multiple different places, starting in the book of Romans, the book of Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and then eventually in the book of Revelation. I'm just going to give you a, a forewarning there. We're going to be in multiple places. If you want to take notes, this is a good place to do so as we talk about the resurrection. Listen, these resurrections won't occur at the same time, and so it's not, time is not the distinguishing feature, but instead it's life or death. 
eternal life from Christ or eternal death. That's the distinguishing feature in these two things. But before these two is the proof that this will come, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Christ talks about uh, this, even in this passage, that he too would die and rise again. And so this is something that as we have this promise from God, it is a uh, kind of like a guarantee that we will see uh, uh, our own resurrection. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 9 says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over here. Christ, others have been raised from the dead, but Christ was the only and he was the first person to arise from the grave with a body that was no longer subject to death. This is why Paul called him the firstborn from the dead. In Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And so we have this confidence in him. This promise is that his resurrection is the first of many to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After, uh, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So Christ, again, that forerunner, that first fruit of, that, of what will come for those. Now there is the resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming. Now let's talk about this group first. So if you're saved in here, say amen. 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 So this is, this, is, this is your promise. I love this. This resurrection will include several groups. All right. So there's the dead saints of the church age today. 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the uh, trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So we recognize that's part of this group. The second part of the group is the dead saints at Old Testament times. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 12 and 2, excuse me, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and, sh and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we recognize that that too will be part of the resurrection. Then the, there's also the martyrs from the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 4, he talks about this. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so we see them here resurrected in Revelation 20. These are the resurrection of the saints of all the ages and it constitutes the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath pardoned the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Amen? But they shall be priests of God and Christ and reign with him a thousand years. All right. So that's the first group. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the unsaved dead at the end. So the last group that will be here will be the unredeemed of all time. They will be raised at the end of the millennial kingdom and they will stand before the great white throne in a judgment that will sentence all of them to the lake of fire. Uh, excuse me. Revelation chapter 20 deals with this. <clears throat> Verse 11, he says, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no, no, I found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so it is obvious as we see here the promise of the resurrection that we don't want to be a part of that second resurrection. God, God demonstrates that this is going to, the promise of the second resurrection is torment and agony and eternal death, if you will. And so it is a literal place uh, that we call hell that God has promised for all those that reject Jesus Christ. And so today, if you're in the hearing of my voice, I, I just want to encourage you uh, that God has made another promise here in this passage that we cannot miss, and that's the promise of eternal life. Because when we see that Jesus Christ doesn't want you to go to hell, He doesn't want you to spend an eternity there, instead He's done something that's greater for you and for me, and that's this promise of eternal life. Now, this is offered to all men, all women, but not all will receive it. The Bible says that Jesus said that straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. And so I, I just want to encourage you, just come in real close as we talk about this promise of eternal life, because Jesus Christ offers you eternal life with God in heaven. Let's look at the guarantee very quickly. I mentioned this earlier, and as we see this, we see uh, that this is a very important thing. It's a guarantee of this promise. This, maybe this week or this year, many of us are going to purchase something new. And almost everything, if it's electric or maybe it's a house or a car or something, it comes with a warranty of some sort. Uh, and, and so as we think about that warranty, the, the manufacturer is saying, we guarantee that our uh, product will service you well for the next 90 days, year, three years. It's a guarantee that it will perform according to your expectations. And if it doesn't, then you can return it. When Christ offers the promise of eternal life, he was setting himself up as the guarantee. Matter of fact, in this passage, we find the first of seven I am titles of Christ that was found in this gospel and in this gospel alone. Look at a couple of places with me. In John 6 and verse 48, where, where we're at now in our, our text, he says, I am that bread of life. And so we see that Jesus' first I am title was, he is, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8 and verse number 12, he says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10 and verse number 9, he says, I am the door. Man, I'm thankful that he is the door. And he goes on and says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Amen. And so that's a great promise from God. That's a reminder. John 10 and verse 11, to a couple verses down, I am the good shepherd. Aren't you thankful that he cares for our souls? John chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, we're familiar with this one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, in verse number 1, I am the true vine. They all look back to this memorial occasion when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and, and uh, had bade him to go down into Egypt. And he uh, called him to communicate with the people and, and to, uh, to interview Pharaoh and to command him to let the children of God go forth into the wilderness. And, and when Moses asked, who shall I say that sent me? The answer was Exodus 3 and verse 14, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. 
He said, this is, this is who it is. And so when John reveals this and John emphasizes these I am statements, he's referring to the deity of Christ. Remember, John was writing so that the skeptics of his time would truly come to know Christ as their Savior and put their faith in the fact that he is the Son of God. And as we look at this, Jesus is that guarantee for us because he is eternally God. We have great confidence in that today. Now, let's look at the proof of the promise in verse number 33 and following as we look in this. Uh, 53 and following, excuse me, as we look in this, our text. Because as, and as he says here, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. As Christ told these people these words, they would need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. I don't know about you, but if someone told that to me, I'd think they were a lunatic. I, I'm thinking maybe if Brother Terry came to me and said, Brother John, you've got to take a big chunk out of me, uh, and then uh, you'll be saved. I'd probably say, Brother Terry, I think we're going to have a business meeting tonight and vote you out of the church. And, and so would you too. We'd be like, you're crazy. But the reality is, as Jesus was talking here, he wasn't talking about a literal eating of his flesh, but he was talking about the sacrifice of his death on the cross. You see, because just a few chapters hence, we will find that Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life on the cross to die for me. His body was broken. His, his side was pierced. He, laid, he was crucified. His blood was spilled so that we could have eternal life. See, as he talks about this, that's what he's talking about. Think about this. If, if the, the connection here is, is with manna. And if those Jews had gone out after God said, listen, I'm going to provide something for you, and you're just going to have to go out and collect and eat it. And they went out, and they looked at the ground, and they saw this white stuff on the ground, and they picked it up, and they brought it back, and we're going to do a scientific study on this stuff. So we've called Dr. Fauci. Just kidding. <laughs> he may be that old, but I'm not sure. We're going to call our greatest scientist and he's going to come in and we're going to put it in the laboratory and we're going to find out what this stuff is. And then once we determine that it's safe for you to eat, then we'll let you let the people have it. Okay? They didn't do that, did they? They didn't take time. They didn't philosophize over it. And like, Where did this come from? We don't really know. You know, they didn't sit down and they didn't try to eulogize over it or anything like that. They just went out and they collected it and they ate it. Why? Because they knew that if they ate it, their life would go on. They were hungry. Like many of you are because it's a little after 12 and you're like, Pastor, lunch is calling my name. And you're thinking, okay, we're talking about food again and it's lunchtime. But as we look here, we see here in John that he's, he's making this connection. He said, just as those people went out by faith and they ate the manna, just as they went out and they consumed it, just as they were willing by faith to trust the Lord, so and when you put your faith in me, you're forsaking all else, you're forsaking these traditions, you're forsaking all of these other things, and you're only trusting me. He says, that is what it means to truly have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to have a salvation by Christ. You see, we must do the same thing today. When we come to Jesus Christ, we don't come and we don't just philosophize about Him. We don't analyze Him. We don't eulogize Him. We must come believing. If we want to be saved today, it's not enough just to come to church and hear someone preach about Him. It's not just enough to sing about Him. It's about completely trusting Christ that, that He would be the Savior for their life, believing that He is the eternal Son of God, believing that He, if he, you call upon Him, he, was be, he is willing to save you from your sins. This is what it means to, to eat of this flesh, to drink of His blood, to identify with Christ to say, God, I want my life with you. How can we know what's the proof that Jesus is the answer that we're looking for? Let me take you back to Calvary. If we were to look on that hillside, 
We'd look on Golgotha and we would look for a cross today. I'm telling you, it's empty. So, well, of course it's empty. They put him in a tomb and we were to walk the street down the narrow path and we were to enter into the tomb. And, and as our lights adjusted, you would find an empty place where the body of our Savior once laid. I'm telling you, the proof of, of uh, the fact that we can put our faith in Jesus Christ, the proof of our salvation, the proof of, of our future resurrection is in the fact that the tomb is empty. I love what Henry Morris said. He said, The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God, and the Christian faith is absolute truth. In 1 Corinthians 15 is a glorious chapter that reveals Christ's resurrection and the benefits of it. If you turn there with me, we're going to look at several uh, verses there in your Bible. And I want you to see them in your Bible. Maybe if you mark in your Bible to underline some of these and to just be able to call back easily in your mind in your Bible study and as you reflect over the Word of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see the first few verses there recounts for us the gospel, the death, the burial, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And how do we know? Because he was seen of over 500 witnesses after he rose from the dead. Hallelujah. This is not just an arbitrary thing. Well, we're just living by faith. True, but we have over 500 people that wrote and, to and told and, and shared with others, I have seen Jesus. He was truly alive. And though we're several uh, centuries uh, removed from that point, the truth is still the same, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so he establishes that right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. But as he goes on, we're taught a little bit more about what this means to us. We're taught that through this resurrection, there is life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. What a glorious hope for us today. Adam, the original man, he brought sin into the world and death by sin so that death passed upon all men, as Romans 5.12 also says. But Christ, who is eternally God, brought life through His death. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, so, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Amen. He brought life where there was death. I love it. Ephesians 2.10. Uh, actually, it should be Ephesians 2.1. So I've got the wrong verse on, on the screen. But he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. You see, the problem is, is that before Jesus Christ uh, came, that we were all uh, in a, uh, headed toward an eternal death because of our sins. We were separated from God because of sin. But that's why Jesus Christ came, because he was that quickening spirit. He was that one that made us alive through Jesus today. And the resurrection of Christ is proof that all who put their, their uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, have, will have life in him. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. One, one last little passage here, verses 54 through 57. So when this corruptible, talking about this outer flesh, this, this body, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How could he do it? Because up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. I'm telling you, folks, we have great confidence in Jesus Christ today because he is the victor over the grave. He is the one that promises resurrection. He is the one that promises eternal life. And his resurrection is proof. The story is told of an African Muslim who became a Christian and his friends came to him and said, why have you converted to Christianity? And he said it like this, and I love the way he said it. He said, suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions. You didn't know which way to go and there at the fork were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask? It makes good sense to me. I'm thinking that's pretty good common sense. And only in Jesus Christ there is life because he is alive today. Uh, I, I love that song. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Listen, I know he's living. Amen. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And we are so grateful that our confidence is built on that very truth. A man was once conversing with a Brahmin peace, uh, priest and he asked, could you say, I am the resurrection and the life? And the priest replied, yeah, I could say that. And then he asked this question, but could you make anyone believe it? See, Christ proved his superiority. He proved that he was gone because he didn't just say it in these words in John 6. Later we read in the book of John and the book of Matthew and, and throughout the Gospels that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and over 500 witnesses can testify to the truth that Jesus Christ is alive on today. Amen? And I'm thankful that as Christians that we can have confidence in Christ. You know, you may go through hard times here on this earth. We may go through times where it seems like, man, Pastor, it just it seems like the world is caving in all around me. But we still serve a risen Savior. We still serve a God who is alive. And in 1 John 4, 4, it says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Cling to the promises of God. Know that he that which created all things before the world even began, we see that he is the God who also says he cannot lie. Maybe your question comes to mind today, why would Christ do that for me? You know, if we're honest, there's only a few people that we would be willing to die for. Husbands may be willing to die for their wife and their children, maybe grandkids if you have some, you'd be willing to maybe step in the line of fire for them and, and take a bullet for the team, you know. We always brag about that as men. But reality you probably wouldn't stand in the way of a bullet for me. I'm not trying to, be, trying to be weird. I just want you to think about it. How many people would you be willing to die for? Maybe even good people. Maybe uh, there are some that we call secret service, and they would uh, give up their life to, uh, to save the President of the United States. Maybe a soldier who would give his life to protect the liberties that are given by God, not by man. Maybe a husband and a father. But would you give your life in exchange for someone who hated you? Would you give your life in exchange for someone who maybe spat upon you, who plucked your beard, who, who uh, beat you? Let me remind you, that's what Christ did. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 through 9 so the last scripture we have for this morning. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
It's you and me. You see, in my sin, God didn't look at me and say, oh, look how wonderful John is. No, what he did is he looked at me and said, listen, he's a dirty, rotten sinner, and he needs someone to die on his behalf. And Jesus said, I'll go. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure even for a good man would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Here's the glorious thing. When you choose to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are choosing a life with God. That, and while that may not be a perfect life of ease that we dream about, it will come with promises that we can cling to. And one is a promise of the resurrection uh, unto life. And the second is a promise of eternal life. And these are the promises that God was, was professing here and saying, listen, if you want real promise, you want something that you could hang your hand on. You want something that you can cling to today. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. In a world full of, uh, of, of lies, in a world full of misconceptions, I'm thankful that we can come to the Word of God and know that Jesus is still alive and He still wants to save you and He still is the same yesterday, today, and forever and you can come to Him today. And He says this, I love you. Above everything else, I love you and I want you to be with me.